0: following program is in English.
1: Thank you.
0: You're tuned in to Lachaim, To Life, with your host, Morris Klein, who just happens to be my baby brother. Shalom Aleichem, it's Lachaim time, To Life, Jewish Life and more. Well, most of Australia is still in Meshigar lockdown insanity. I have always been of the view that the cure is far worse than the disease because you don't shut down economies. Time will tell. I reminded our Lachaim listeners last week that JIF, the Jewish International Film Festival, was just around the corner in late October. Well, the cholera COVID lockdown has put a hold on that, with JIF now being postponed to February, March next year, 2022. So for lovers of Jewish and Israeli movies and TV shows, as I also mentioned last week, Flix is now streaming in Australia and New Zealand with exclusive new Jewish-themed and Israeli content added weekly. Try it for free today at highflix.com.au, and you can use the code MUZZLETOV in capital letters for 50% off your first six months. It's really cheap as chips as it is anyway. You're tuned into L'Chaim, Two Life, Jewish Life and more. Part of the Jewish group here at 92.3 FM, 3 Z. My guest is another great friend of the Jewish community, Senator James Patterson. Don't change that dial. Senator Patterson.
1: Mr. Acting Deputy President, I present the report of the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security on its review of the relisting of Hezbollah's External Security Organisation as a terrorist organisation under the Criminal Code, uh, and I seek leave to speak to the report. Is leave granted? Leave is granted. Thank you, Mr. Acting Deputy President. Hezbollah's External Security Organisation has been listed as a terrorist organisation under the Criminal Code since 2003. Hezbollah's ESO has been relisted six times since 2003, and this will mark the seventh. The committee was concerned by the decision to, at this stage, only relist Hezbollah's ESO. In its last review of the relisting of Hezbollah in 2018, the committee recommended that the government consider extending the listing to include the military wing of Hezbollah. In this report, the committee goes a step further. We recommend the government consider listing Hezbollah in its entirety as a terrorist organisation. We do so based on the expert evidence received by the committee that the distinction that we currently draw between Hezbollah's ESO and the rest of Hezbollah is an arbitrary one.
0: Joining us tonight on L'Chaim is Senator James Patterson. Senator Patterson is the Chair of Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security and the Deputy Chair of Select Committee on COVID-19. Senator Patterson, welcome to Lachaim to life, Jewish life and more. Thank you for having me. Senator Patterson, last month, Hezbollah's External Security Organization, ESO, relisted as a terrorist organization on the advice of the Parliamentary Joint Committee of Intelligence and Security. But as we heard in the introductory clip, with concern, could you please elaborate on that?
1: Yeah, so it's a really good question,
2: Morrison. it's a long-standing issue, as you probably know. Australia draws a distinction when in its listing of Hezbollah as a terrorist organization, and it only lists the external security organization as a terrorist entity. It doesn't list the military wing nor the whole organization. Now, that was a position which five or 10 years ago was in step with most of our allies. Most of our allies also drew that distinction. But increasingly, countries like the United States, Canada, the UK, France, Germany and others are walking away from that distinction and they are recognising that Hezbollah is one single unitary organisation and that it is an artificial distinction to list only the external security organisation and not the entire organisation as a terrorist entity. So the Intelligence and Security Committee conducting a review of the ESO's listing took evidence from a range of experts from around the world that confirmed this international trend and, most importantly, demonstrated that there is no meaningful operational separation between Hezbollah's terrorist wing, uh, the ESO, and all of its other activities. It is run by Hassan Rezbollah. Um, the Shura Council that sits under him directs all of its activities, including its military paramilitary and terrorist activities and we can no longer draw a meaningful distinction so we recommended to government that it's a good thing that they've listed the ESO but that they should go further and list the whole organization as a terrorist entity.
0: Fully prescribing Hezbollah as a, a terrorist organization. Exactly. Actually next week our guest is going to be uh, Lieutenant uh, Colonel uh, Sarit Harvey. She has a, an NGO by the name of Elma, and she is an expert on the security issues of uh, Israel's northern borders and Hezbollah. I'll have to put you in touch with her. Please. Last week I asked Senator Van this question, and I would also like your view. Senator Patterson, many in the Jewish community see neo-Nazism as the main anti-Semitic threat here in Australia and globally. 60 Minutes in the Age have been running feature stories on the local neo-Nazis, And yes, they are always a serious source of anti-Semitism and concern. And there is now a call to also have them proscribed as a terrorist organisation. Rightly so, and it can't come soon enough. That said, I disagree with the view that neo-Nazism is the main anti-Semitic threat here in Australia and elsewhere. I'm more concerned with the intersectionality of the hardcore left, the not-so-hard left, and Islam. Am I off target here?
2: This is an issue that the committee is currently examining. We're conducting inquiry into extremism and radicalism in Australia, and we are looking at all forms of extremism and radicalism, uh, inclusive of uh, Islamism, uh, but also uh, some of these uh, neo-Nazi or white nationalist or white supremacist groups. And the assessment of ASIO and its Director General, Mike Burgess, is that the fastest growing threat from a terrorist point of view domestically in Australia is on the white nationalist, white supremacist, neo-Nazi end of the spectrum. At the start of this year, about 40% of ASIO's priority counterterrorism workload was devoted to these ideologically motivated extremist groups. It's now 50%. A few years ago, it was only 30%. So there's no question it's a growing threat. And while these groups like the National Socialist Network, which I've been very publicly critical of, are unquestionably a menace to society, and we do need to look at whether they qualify to be a terrorist organisation or if they don't, whether we need to change the law to better capture groups like this. Um, They're also not Uh, al-Qaeda. They're not ISIL, and they have not established a caliphate uh, anywhere in Australia. And so they pose a different threat. The threat that we're concerned about from these groups is that, not that organisationally they're currently planning uh, acts of violence. If they were, they would have been rounded up and arrested, as you would believe. But that individuals could splinter off from these groups and engage in lone wolf attacks against the Jewish community or other uh, sensitive targets in our community. And that is a very real risk, a very serious risk, and it's taken very seriously.
0: Thank you. Two weeks ago in the Senate, you introduced a surveillance legislation amendment, Identity and Disrupt Bill 2020, in response to the growing technological advancement that challenges the ability of our law enforcement and intelligence agencies to combat the most serious type of offending. In a way, this highlights the quickly changing playing field that we have found ourselves in. Would you like to expand on the steps that Australia has and needs to take in order to tame the technological genie that has escaped from the bottle?
1: Well, this is a
2: a profoundly disturbing uh, part of the work of the Australian Federal Police, which is that groups that they target, including terrorists, child exploitation rings and drug traffickers, are becoming increasingly sophisticated in their communications. They're using anonymised and encrypted communications, which allow them to protect their identity and to communicate securely between each other to facilitate their crimes. They're using the dark web to sell drugs, guns, uh, move money and uh, child exploitation material. And it's become increasingly hard for the AFP and their law enforcement partners to crack into those cells because of the result of the encryption and anonymising technology that they use. The government is seeking from the parliament and our committee has recommended that the parliament agree with some amendments to this new piece of legislation, the Identify and Disrupt Bill that you mentioned. It would allow the AFP to do three things. It would give them three new warrants. One of them is an account takeover warrant where they would be given the legal power to force someone to allow their account to be used by the AFP for the purposes of disrupting a child exploitation ring, for example. Another is a network activity warrant, which would allow the AFP to get onto these networks and monitor the activities from an intelligence point of view. And the third is a data disruption warrant, which would give the AFP the power actually to, in a cyber way, disrupt these rings and prevent them from broadcasting their material or circulating their material online. Unfortunately, laws like this are necessary because otherwise, these groups will continue to evade law enforcement and conduct their nefarious activities in relative security and privacy, and we just can't have that in Australia.
0: Definitely not. Newspaper reports claim that the Australian government is being urged to declare any use of spyware in its intelligence gathering and to refuse to use surveillance products made by an intelligence security company. One assumes our company is Pegasus. Could you please uh, comment on this issue?
2: Yes, this attracts some uh, interesting media coverage over the last few months uh, where uh, it's an Israeli software company, uh, Pegasus, sells surveillance technology to a range of partners around the world. To my knowledge, it doesn't have any Australian government partners, state or federal, but has been used across the Middle East and Asia and Europe. And reports are that some of that technology has been used not to monitor terrorists or other criminals, but journalists and political dissidents and other people. It's an important reminder of a couple of things. Firstly, that our electronic devices, in many ways, wonderful tools, but they're dangerous tools. They can be used by others to surveil us and our activities. And if you want to protect your privacy, you have to be very conscious about the way the vulnerabilities that these devices introduce into our lives. Secondly, it's a reminder that although it's appropriate to use surveillance and uh, intelligence technology to counter threats, there are governments around the world that are not dictated by the rule of law like Australia is and our allies are, like Israel is. And that they are willing to use this technology, not just on genuine threats to community safety, but on political inconveniences and irritations. It's not clear to me that it's necessary for Australia to take any action on this because it's not clear to me that it has been used in Australia. We would look at that closely if it emerged, that it was being used. But at this stage, we don't have any evidence that it is.
0: Ransom attacks on corporate and government data appear to be an extremely regular occurrence. The accepted trend of storing sensitive and non-sensitive data in cloud, which in reality is outsourced banks of computer storage, potentially anywhere on earth, even in hostile jurisdictions, is a potential weak spot, as well as the proliferation of wide area computer networks with questionable security. The Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security is attempting to make corporation leadership responsible for ensuring that their respective organisations' computer systems are protected from such security breaches. How do you see this working out? Yes,
2: this is a massive problem um, faced by uh, every company, uh, every country in the world, where ransomware gangs are becoming highly sophisticated in the way in which they can get onto vulnerable computer systems, steal information and lock it up and lock it away and refuse to give it back to the company unless a ransom is paid. Now, this is often criminally motivated, and particularly there are gangs operating out of Russia and Eastern Europe that are highly sophisticated criminal gangs. But a few weeks ago, in the attribution of the Microsoft Exchange tax to China, The Biden administration said that they believe that the Ministry of State Security in China was engaging in these ransomware tactics and was employing consultants and contractors who use these ransomware tactics. So there is a blurring of state espionage, cyber attacks and criminal gang activity. What we need to do in response to that is to massively lift the level of cyber literacy and security across our private sector. And we particularly need to do it in critical infrastructure areas in, in systems of national significance. So that includes things like our water supply, our power supply, but also our infrastructure network that delivers our food and groceries and medicines. It includes things like obviously our defence industries. Because if they don't lift that level of security themselves to protect themselves, they will be highly vulnerable to this. And it could have profound strategic implications for Australia. Not just that you as a customer will be disrupted if a business that you're reliant on goes offline, but our country may be disrupted quite profoundly in the event of some of those attacks, and that might prevent us, for example, if there was a regional crisis from coming to the aid uh, of our friends and allies, and that would be a a profoundly concerning thing. So we have some legislation before the committee that seeks to address this.
0: Absolutely, very complex. Senator Patterson, recently there appears to be a global effort to change social media platforms from being just a conduit of information to making it liable for the content of the information posted on their sites. Recently in the US, Google has lost the argument just being a conduit for free speech. Obviously, there are also legal jurisdictions issues that must be visited and probably updated. How do you see this issue panning out?
2: It is a fascinating area of uh, defamation law in particular, and it stems out of a US legal distinction between a publisher and a platform. And it's not a legal distinction which works in the same way in Australia, but it's relevant to Australia for a different reason, which I'll come to in a second. In the United States, effectively, you can be a publisher who makes editorial choices about what is on your platform, like a newspaper is, and therefore you're legally liable for it. Or you can be a platform that doesn't make editorial choices, allows anything to be posted there, and therefore you are not legally liable for what's posted on there. Social media companies in the United States and elsewhere are increasingly trying to have both. They're trying to say, we are a platform and we don't make editorial decisions, but they're increasingly censoring some content on their platforms, which makes them look a lot more like publishers. It's relevant in the US because some of the exemptions that they enjoy in the US might no longer be the case if they're declared to be publishers. In Australia, we don't have that same legal distinction, but it is an emerging and developing area of law. There have been cases where people have been found legally liable for comments left on Facebook underneath their posts, which they have not published themselves, but someone else has published. And there are cases working their way through the courts to potentially find YouTube, for example, to be legally liable for things that are posted on there. Now, if it were the case, if the law were clarified to make clear, for example, for defamation purposes, that Facebook or Google or Twitter or any of these services were legally liable for the purposes of defamation for things that are posted on their platforms, that would lead them to engage in mass censorship of their platforms to massively reduce the risk, the legal risk that they'd be exposed to. So I think we have to think very carefully. While we all want to get some horrible content online, offline, we don't want the vitriol and the abuse and the anti-Semitism, which we've seen on social media, we don't want that on there. We also don't want um, to squash the public square so much that free speech and free debate can't take place.
0: It's a thin line and uh, the social media organisations want to have their cake and eat it too. Senator Patterson, the forging and subsequent distribution of COVID-19 vaccine passports must be of a concern to you and the government. It must be potentially a global problem since we will have to rely on the integrity of such documents issued in countries that have questionable bureaucratic integrity. What are your thoughts on ensuring that we can rely on such documents as a non-fungible token, better known as NFT, that certifies a digital asset to be unique, not interchangeable, and therefore secure must be considered as a way to ensure the integrity of these passports?
2: Yes, this is a rapidly emerging area, and no country has yet come completely to grips with it. Some countries have now started to implement a requirement that you are vaccinated to visit, and they've often specified which vaccines you can have. So, for example, if Australia sought to do this, we might say that only a Therapeutic goods Administration approved vaccine is a valid vaccine for the purposes of entering Australia. But as you say, there will be people who will try and game the system, who will try and lie, and they'll try and say they were vaccinated or they were vaccinated with a particular vaccine that might not be the case. And it is going to be difficult for countries to assure that. I agree with you that blockchain is a potential solution here where you've got a distributed ledger that allows you to kind of really robustly verify whether someone has been vaccinated or not. It is going to rely, I suspect, on some bilateral and ultimately multilateral agreements between nations. And there'll be some countries and some jurisdictions that we have greater levels of trust in that we can say if they've got a US government document that says that they have this, we can have confidence in that. But there'll be some other jurisdictions where we won't be able to have the same level of confidence. And those people might be required to continue to quarantine when they enter Australia, even when quarantine restrictions are lifted for vaccinated people.
0: Terrific. Newspaper report uh, claim that Australia has dipped into the COVAX-Pfizer stockpile intended for poor nations. Have there been attempts to swap the AstraZeneca for Pfizer? And if not, why not? I'm not sure
2: about the truth of those reports. I have seen those reports. One of the things that Australia is doing very generously is donating a very significant amount of vaccines to our near neighbours and friends. We're donating millions of vaccines to the Pacific countries like PNG and Fiji who are battling serious outbreaks uh, and also to Southeast Asia. Indonesia is is a major recipient of millions of vaccines. Primarily, that's the AstraZeneca vaccine, because that's the one that we have manufactured here in Australia, and we have the capacity to donate. Of course, the government is out there trying to get as much Pfizer and other uh, vaccines as possible for Australian citizens. But at the same time, we're upholding our responsibilities in our region to support our friends and our neighbours, because their health and their security underpins and supports ours.
0: Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Uh, Senator Patterson, you along with David Southwick, and I believe Dave Sharma, were conveners of the um, Liberal Friends of Israel. How's that organisation coming along?
2: It's a wonderful initiative that we kind of restarted a few years ago. It, it existed about a decade ago, associated with Helen Shardy, the former member of a Caulfield, and it fell into a bit of inactivity. And David Southwick and I, along with Tim Wilson, David Bann and others have, have revived it. It's a really great vehicle for people who support the Liberal Party and who support Israel to come together to work on that objective. And we've held a number of forums and events. We held an initial launch event with Dave Sharma about 18 months ago now in a pre-COVID era where hundreds of people attended in Corfield, And that was a great launch event. We'd hoped to hold a lot more in person since then, but COVID has intervened. So we've had a number of Zoom events. But membership is open to anyone. You don't have to be a member of the Liberal Party to join. You just have to support Liberal Values uh, and the State of Israel, and you're very welcome. And I think there's a lot of people in the community who fit that criteria, and please get in touch if you'd like to be involved.
0: Absolutely. I was at that launch, and um, great organisation. Senator Patterson, you're a great, great friend of uh, the Jewish community. Really sincerely want to thank you for joining us on L'Chaim. You have been very, very insightful, very, very informative. Yasha Koyach to you. Keep up your great work.
2: Thank you for having me. It's my absolute honour. Stay well. Thank
0: you. Well, that's another Lechayim wrapped up with excellent guests. And as I indicated in the interview, a great friend of the Jewish community, Senator James Patterson. That makes two senators last week and a senator this week. We will have to get our local Caulfield MP, David Southwick, on the program after Yontov. Rosh Hashanah is fair just around the corner. If you're looking for some kosher honey to bring in the sweet new year, check out Hebra Honey, 100% raw, sustainable kosher honey from the front and backyards of our local community. There is a great full-page article on Hebra Honey in the August 6 Australian Jewish News. Hevrah Honey can be purchased from hevrahoney.com.au or by visiting the garden shop at 45 Northcote Avenue, Caulfield North. Our regular Lachame listeners will recall that one of our previous guests was Judah Firestone with B'nai Brith showcase, fostering Jewish musical talent. Well, it's time to tell you that the BB Vic showcase finals concert is this Sunday, the 29th of August at one thirty p.m., So don't miss the opportunity to hear some of the best up-and-coming young musical talents in our community. Please book now at www.trybooking.com forward slash capital B-T-D-P-J. B'nai Briff showcase fostering Jewish musical talent. I'm delighted to let our listeners know that L'Chaim has teamed up with J-Wire a digital Jewish news daily for Australia and New Zealand, which is produced in Sydney by Henry Benjamin, an old schmortologist like yours truly. Last week's Laheim interview with Senator Sarah Henderson was part of last Sunday's j I've been receiving J-Wire for a number of years now. It's well worth subscribing to The Daily J-Wire, free of charge, at www.jwire.com.au. Murray's guest next week will be Sharon Lowe, With the Social Blueprint, a comprehensive one stop shop for all Victorian Jewish community needs. It is a new hub that connects people to Jewish focused organizations, services, businesses, and events. The Social Blueprint embraces all without judgment. Click on the socialblueprint.org.au and click on Jewish Life in the top of the menu. You will see some of our Jewish group's recordings there. I'm looking forward to hearing all about the community's new hub. My guest next week is Lieutenant Colonel Reserve Saritza Harvey with her NGO Elma which monitors security issues on Israel's northern borders. Saritza Harvey and Elma are the first go to people for many, many major media organisations around the world when things are happening in the north of Israel. We will have an update on Hezbollah's latest activities, Iran, and sadly, Lebanon imploding. Right, you'll find in about 15 minutes to half an hour, a recording of tonight's L'Chaim program at 3zzz.com.au. Click on the down arrow in the Listen to a Show square and scroll down to the Jewish group. You'll find it there. Links to YouTube recordings of tonight's interviews will be posted to the L'Chaim and Morris Klein Facebook pages tomorrow. Please check out the other two programs that make up the Jewish group here at Three Triple Z: the Hebrew Hour, Shabbat Shalom, three p.m. on Friday, and the Yiddish Hour, eleven a.m. on Sunday. If you'd like to contact us here at Lachaim, our email is lchaim 3 Z at gmail.com. For only sixteen dollars, please consider becoming a member of the Jewish group here at Three Triple Z, and for seniors, it's just eleven dollars. Again click on 3zzz.com.au. Many thanks again to Team Lachaim, Dr. George Bankey, the executive producer, Dr. Morrie Frankel and Jeff Deegan. So thank you for tuning in and please join us again next week on Chaim. My name is Morris Klein. I'm Yisrael Chai and peace. Thank you.